Now, once again, with today's Carolina Newsmakers, here's Don Curtis. We're back with uh, Tom Jensen, Director of Public Policy Polling. And uh, we asked Tom to be with us because uh, already the 2024 election is underway. We have announced uh, a number of candidates, uh, uh, both the federal level and the state level, uh, a, a number yet, yet to come. And But we just thought well, it would be a good time to get Tom to sort of lay the lay, of, give us the lay of the land. And, uh, of course, uh, the uh, I guess the heir apparent, the person that almost everyone thought was going to run for governor on the Democratic side has announced, and that's the Attorney General, Josh Stein. Uh, how, have you done any polling on him and his acceptance uh, as far as uh, offering himself as a candidate for governor? Well, the interesting thing about Josh Stein, and this was true for Roy Cooper, too, is that he really doesn't have that high name recognition right now, uh, even though he's been attorney general for a couple terms. Anytime we ask people on a poll if they have a favorable or unfavorable opinion of him, more than half of voters don't have an opinion about him one way or the other. Uh, and that's not an indictment of him by any means. Roy Cooper had been attorney general for 16 years. And when he first uh, ran for governor, uh, he had less than 50 percent name recognition starting out. So. Uh, I know that for all of us who follow politics closely, Josh Stein is definitely like a household name and somebody who we're very familiar with, but he's really kind of going to be uh, introducing himself to voters across the state for the first time, for the most part, uh, here over the next couple of years. So uh, I don't want to say he's a, a completely blank slate, but really uh, at this point, I don't think North Carolinians have strong feelings about him one way or the other, uh, and he'll have a chance to sort of uh, try to introduce himself on his terms. And of course, Republicans will try to uh, form a negative opinion of him in voters' eyes before he gets the chance to do that for himself. So I think a big part of him getting into the race so early uh, in January of 2023, heading into the November 2024 election, is that he has that work to do to sort of familiarize himself to voters. Paul, he has not announced yet. Uh, there is a widespread speculation that the, the lieutenant governor of the Republican side will announce for uh, his decision to run. And also there's been some speculation recently about uh, the North Carolina treasurer, Dale Falwell, being a candidate. Have you done research there? Well, we have done research. And what's really interesting about the Republican uh, polling for governor right now is it just makes it very clear the extent to which uh, this sort of extremism has taken over. We uh, polled whether people would want, you know, uh, Mark Robinson, who's obviously uh, quite a, a firebrand, or if they would want uh, State Treasurer Dale Falwell, who's, I think, been a solid sort of uh, technocrat in the job. And we also threw into the mix uh, Senator Tom Tillis, who obviously has, has represented North Carolina in the Senate for quite a while at this point. Uh, and it was not even close when we polled on that. Uh, Mark Robinson had over 50 percent of the vote and neither of those other guys, despite all of their time in statewide office, uh, really had very much support at all. Uh, it was 20 percent support for Tom Tillis in that instance and 4 percent support for Dale Falwell uh, with Mark Robinson at 54 percent. Uh, so I think that pretty clearly shows that it's Robinson's uh, nomination there for the taking. And I think it pretty clearly shows uh, how little of an appetite there is for a more moderate Republican or sort of a more competent Republican 
going out there and, and saying really wild stuff uh, obviously has been much more of a path to popularity for Robinson with the party base and what I would argue is the much more substantive work that Falwell and Tillis have done in their respective jobs. We also have a very interesting situation about the congressional districts in North Carolina. There's the potential of redistricting. Uh, what is your uh, timetable as far as when you think you will know what that situation is going to be and how might that end up? Well, I don't know how quickly Republicans will move to redraw the lines that were used last year, but I think it's safe to say that they will be redrawn. Uh, and what's going to be interesting to see is exactly how aggressive Republicans uh, try to be uh, in creating more districts for themselves. Right now, we're at a seven to seven uh, congressional delegation for North Carolina. Uh, for much of the last decade, we had a 10 to three delegation because Republicans uh, basically drew all the Democrats into three districts. Uh, and there are uh, easy paths, I would say, to at least get Republicans to a 10 to 4 map uh, right now. Uh, certainly the district in the triangle that was the closest race last year between uh, Democrat Wiley Nickel, who was elected mostly because Republicans ran a very poor candidate uh, in Bo Hines, it wouldn't take very much work at all to turn that into a uh, Republican district, just move a few things around here and there. Uh, in the northeastern corner of the state, you had a situation where uh, the Democrat Don Davis was a, a state senator who I think was generally viewed as a very strong candidate. Uh, the Republican candidate was a very weak candidate, Sandy Smith, who didn't have much in the way of qualification and was very extreme. Despite that disparity, it ended up being a pretty close race. Uh, in that Northeastern district. So I think you could see a situation there as well, where if Republicans tweaked the district a little bit and ran a better candidate than they did last time around, uh, you could end up seeing Eastern North Carolina completely represented by uh, Republicans, which would be quite a departure from the fact that we've had uh, an African-American Democrat representing that part of the state since the early 90s. First it was Eva Clayton, and then it was briefly Frank Balance, and then G.K. Butterfield for a long time and now Don Davis newly elected. Uh, it wouldn't take a lot to turn that into a Republican district. And then I think the third one that Republicans could uh, pretty easily flip around is Jeff Jackson's district that uh, covers parts of Mecklenburg County and then, then out west to Gaston County. It would be very easy uh, to move more of the Democratic parts of that district in Mecklenburg County into uh, Alma Adams's district that sort of is center Charlotte and then add more Republican suburban areas to the rest of that district to the point where that would become a strong Republican district. Uh, around this time, a year and a half ago, Speaker Tim Moore really wanted to go uh, to Congress. And uh, you could easily sort of combine Gaston County with Cleveland County that he represents uh, and sort of create a Republican district for him now that uh, Republicans likely are going to have another chance at doing this. So I think at, at the least, Republicans are in a position to probably turn this seven to seven map uh, into a map that gives them a 10 to four advantage. Uh, and then it would be a little bit more of a stretch, but they could try to go after either uh, Kathy Manning uh, in the triad or Deborah Ross's Wake County District to even try to get an 11th seat. I think that would be a little bit greedy. But uh, if I was a Republican, I'd be pretty happy if uh, North Carolina basically is a 51 to 49 Republican state, and I ended up with 10 out of 14 congressional seats. 
the seven to seven delegation that we have right now actually is a very fair representation of the state. Uh, but I don't think that Republicans are going to let that stand. Well, it is interesting. And of course, uh, there's some uh, Supreme Court cases that might also come into play in, in the redistricting matter. Do you think that will have any effect in the redistricting that the uh, General Assembly does? Well, uh, a, a couple different Supreme Courts are a big deal here. Uh, one reason that Republicans are in a position to draw these new maps so much more favorably for themselves is that they took control of the state Supreme Court uh, in the elections last November. The state Supreme Court had sort of held, uh, had reined in Republicans a little bit on exactly how aggressive they could be uh, with their gerrymandering. So that's not a problem anymore. Uh, we had several discussions last year, you and I, about how probably every single statewide judicial race would have the exact same outcome because the candidates just don't really matter in those races. They just kind of match the partisanship of the state. And that is very much what we ended up seeing happen. Basically, every statewide judicial race, Republicans won by about three to five points. So that's one key. Uh, and then we are likely to see some decisions from the U.S. Supreme Court about redistricting perhaps come down this year. My guess, based on how the Supreme Court has dealt with redistricting issues so far, is that they're going to give states very wide leeway to just do whatever they want. Uh, so I think that that would probably empower uh, Republicans in the General Assembly to be pretty aggressive about what they do in terms of redrawing these lines to win themselves more seats. I'm correct in saying that uh, on the... Uh state level, you have to live in the district that you serve. The congressional candidates do not have to live in their district. Is that correct still? I believe so, yeah. When do you think, if, if it were to get to be a 10-4 or 11-3 or, or situation, when do you think that might be a factor uh, for someone who has statewide appeal? Uh, let's just say a Tom Tillis decides to come back to North Carolina and decides to run for for a house seat and uh, he doesn't live in the, the district, but he has uh, uh, great name recognition. I'm just using that as an example. I have no idea that he's even thinking about that. But uh, do you think that will become a factor at some point in time as uh, uh, as the Republicans may run out of candidates in, within their own district? Well, I think one thing that we've definitely learned over the last few uh, elections is that more and more partisanship just trumps everything. Uh, so I think that if you had a Republican candidate running in a district that they didn't live in, I don't think there's very many voters who would be particularly concerned about that or have that really have an impact on their vote. I think that they would just, if they were inclined to vote Republican in general, they'd just keep on voting Republican, whether uh, that person happened to be a, a true resident of the district or not. That's the kind of process story that I think voters just care less and less about. Uh, as it becomes more and more about supporting their team, be that the red team or the blue team. I think there's a, a lot more room for people in those sorts of situations to not face a real liability for not living in the district. Tom, those, of, uh, those listeners who listen to this program know all along that uh, I've stated publicly that I'm a registered and affiliate. Uh, and uh, one of the things that sort of bothers me about the high number of people who are now registered as independents, is they have essentially taken themselves out of the opportunity to serve uh, because they, they are not a Democrat or Republican. And so if they come out and say, okay, for the election purposes, I'll be a Democrat or Republican, then the party may 
take a position where you weren't very loyal and uh, it puts them in a very bad light. Do you think that that situation will ever change where we will allow a third party candidate to run uh, more easily than the laws in North Carolina currently allow? Uh, I think it's just a, a situation where one party has to be willing to stand down in order for an independent candidate to be successful. Uh, so this is not a North Carolina specific example, but for instance, Lisa Murkowski uh, was reelected to the Senate from Alaska as an independent last year. But the only reason she was able to win as an independent was because Democrats all voted for her. If there had been an actual Democratic candidate, uh, she wouldn't have had enough support to get reelected. But because the Democrats combined with the moderate Republicans and the independents to all support her over sort of the more extreme sort of Republican candidate, that's how it happened. So that same model could be replicated in some specific areas in North Carolina. But you think about somebody like Lisa Murkowski, she's somebody who's a very well-known name, lots of personal charisma and sort of longstanding credibility with people in the state. I think for unaffiliated candidates to win elections in North Carolina, you'd need a similar sort of situation like that, where even though you're unaffiliated, one party's voters or the other pretty much completely vote for you. Uh, and then you have enough support from just unaffiliated or from more moderate voters of the other party to get you over the top. And that's a hard coalition to assemble. Well, it's a, it's an interesting situation, especially in a purple state like North Carolina, where, as you said, we've got 5149 sort of uh, uh, as far as the, uh, the way that uh, statewide elections go. And yet we have... Uh, uh, the the possibility of having 10 congressmen from one party. That's kind of an interesting situation. Well, our guest is Tom Jensen. He's the director of public policy polling. And uh, we've got uh, another segment to come up. And we want to talk about, uh, 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 again, uh, an extension of the ideas of what's going on in this upcoming 2024 election, which is the time is ticking already. It seems strange that we are already talking about it, but we are. We'll be back right after these messages. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move's called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has mom my. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Betty can't say that in reverse. Hey, hon, what you doing with your phone? Taking pictures? No, I'm asking questions. Like what? Hey, Bobo, do flowers have best friends? I'm sorry, I'm afraid I don't know that. Hey, follow me. I want to show you something. Look, flowers do have best friends. Whoa. Some answers can only be found in nature. Discover the unsearchable. Visit discovertheforest.org to find a trail near you. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. 
Carolina Newsmakers continues, and once again, here's Don Curtis. Welcome back to our final segment of Carolina Newsmakers. Tom Jensen is our guest. A reminder that if you're listening to a station that carries the half-hour version of this program, there are two other segments that are available on carolinanewsmakers.com, and you can go online and hear those as they are segregated out. Or if you are uh, want to share the entire broadcast with a friend, you can do that as well. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. Tom, when we were talking about uh, the presidential uh, race beginning to take shape already uh, for uh, uh, Republicans, we did not talk too much about the Democratic situation. So uh, I guess we need to follow up on that and give us your opinion of exactly where Democrats stand with regards to perhaps running President Biden for another term or would they like to look elsewhere? What's the what's the story there? There's a really interesting dichotomy in Biden's numbers with Democrats, which is that Democrats are overwhelmingly happy with the job he's doing. But at the same time, most Democrats actually would prefer a different candidate to be the nominee next year. Uh, These numbers I'm going to share from a poll we did in Dallas County, Texas, which is actually a, a really racially diverse county that's pretty reflective of the Democratic coalition. Uh, And we did a poll there recently. We found that 85 percent of Democrats approve of the job Biden's doing. Only four percent disapprove. So you'd think if only four percent are unhappy, he'd be overwhelmingly uh, uh, the choice to get another term. But when we asked people who they wanted the candidate to be next year, 32 percent picked Biden, uh, 17 percent picked Pete Buttigieg, 12 percent picked Kamala Harris. Uh, and then another 39% either picked another candidate or just said that they weren't sure. So an 85% approval rating among Democrats, but only 32% actually saying that they they want him to be the candidate again. And I think that's probably mostly a reflection of his age, just a, a feeling that maybe somebody who's younger from the next generation should be the candidate. Uh, but I think what you're probably going to end up having happen here is that a serious Democratic challenger to Biden is not actually going to emerge. I would be surprised if anybody uh, who was a strong candidate on the Democratic side really ended up running against Biden. And certainly that's not something where Democratic voters would then be super unhappy because they do like Biden, uh, but they're definitely open to a newer voice if uh, if they were presented with one. Uh, that's that's interesting because the age issue is also uh uh, you know, two years down the road, both uh, Biden and Trump will be two years older, and both of them have an age issue. I'm surprised the age issue hasn't. Uh, do people just assume that uh, Trump is healthier than Biden? <laughs> I'm not sure, but it is sort of an interesting scene situation for both parties where uh, it's possible they might both be better off if they ran somebody different than they did the last time around. When we do Biden versus Trump polls and Biden versus DeSantis polls, DeSantis always does four or five points better uh, against Biden than Trump does. So I think Republicans for sure would be better off putting a newer voice forward. And then when you see how many Democrats would like to try something new, you wonder how somebody like Pete Buttigieg might do as a general election candidate or how Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan might do as a general election candidate compared to uh, Biden, but uh, at the end of the day, they do still both have the most support in their party. So we could very well end up with a, a rematch of last time around. When you isolate out the electoral college votes, uh, 
how does that turn out as far as your polling of Biden versus Trump? Because as we found out last time, uh, and as we found out in several campaigns, the popular vote does not always decide who's going to be elected president of the United States. So if you uh, uh, just uh, separate or segregate the uh, important states out, what uh, what results do you end up with? Well, I think you would basically end up with an election very similar to 2020, which, although, as you know, Biden won by a substantial amount in the popular vote, and he actually won it by a pretty substantial amount in the Electoral College, too. But he won it by a substantial amount in the Electoral College because he just about ran the table in super competitive states like Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania. All those states were decided by less than a couple points, and Biden came out ahead in all of them. It would not take too much of a shift in those states to end up moving it in Trump's uh, direction. So I think that, you know, as much baggage as there is ascribed to Trump, if it does end up being Biden versus Trump again, I think it's going to be a really close election again. We haven't uh, we haven't seen much evidence that people are really changing their minds in a substantive manner. Well, that leads me, I guess, to uh, a, a sort of a summary uh, to get you to summarize what happened and why in the uh, November election that just passed. Yeah, I mean, uh, it ended up being a much better election for Democrats than expected. Uh, and usually if you say an election went a lot better for one side than expected, you would say, oh, the polls must have had another bad year. It was actually a very good year for polling. The, the polls pretty much uh, turned out the way that uh, we all said they would. But what was surprising was that what usually happens in a midterm election is that the undecided voters in the polls at the end move strongly to the party that's out of power. So I remember the last conversation that we had before the election. I said, you know, Democrats are up by a little bit in Pennsylvania. They're up by a little bit in Arizona, Georgia, Nevada, et cetera. But based on what's happened historically, these races where they're up by a little bit, they're probably going to end up losing because the undecideds break against the party in power. Uh, and what actually ended up happening last year is that that didn't happen. Uh, the undecideds didn't vote break, didn't uh, end up breaking at the end strongly in one direction or the other. Uh, and where the polls were leading up to the election was pretty much where the results ended up being, too. And the reason that happened is because Republicans, uh, A, in a lot of key Senate races in particular, nominated very poor candidates. Uh, and at the end of the day, a lot of people who didn't like Biden, but also didn't like the Republican candidate, ended up just voting for the Democrat, because uh, even if they weren't unhappy with Biden, they might have thought, for instance, in a place like Pennsylvania that, uh, you know, I might not like the president, but John Fetterman is better than Dr. Oz, that sort of thing. Uh, so that was a big part of what happened is that uh, people did not move to the Republicans at the end because they just could not stomach voting for these Republican candidates who they thought were uh, some combination of both too extreme and also too unqualified. Uh, then another big thing that just made a huge difference for Democrats last year was how much of a mobilizing factor the abortion issue ended up being. Uh, that, you know, a lot of the time in a midterm election, the party that's in power doesn't have much that it can work with to sort of get their voters fired up or engaged because they've been making the decisions. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's no sort of boogeyman to use. And the Supreme Court gave Democrats uh, a boogeyman that made it so that 
the turnout differential that usually happens between Democrats and Republicans in a midterm election uh, was not nearly what it usually is. Democrats really were able to get their uh, people motivated to get out and vote. Uh, so those were a couple of the key reasons that things ended up, even though Republicans got control of the U.S. House and certainly Republicans had a good election in North Carolina, uh, the national picture was a lot better for Democrats than you usually would expect in a midterm because of those issues. Tom, um, if you were to give advice, and I'm sure you do this on a regular basis to those who uh, hire you to do polling for them, but uh, uh, overall, what advice would you give first to the Democratic Party in North Carolina and then also to the Republican Party in North Carolina as far as how they would approach the upcoming 2024 election? The biggest issue Democrats have in North Carolina, and this is especially acute in the northeastern part of the state where Democrats lost a ton of legislative races last year and also came uncomfortably close in the congressional race, is Democrats are consistently not turning out at the same rate that Republicans are. And it's a particularly pronounced problem with getting uh, rural black Democrats to come out and vote. I think Democrats really need to be making a 24 month uh, investment in engaging their base, particularly uh, in more rural parts of the state that have just been getting further and further away. I don't think it's a situation where it can be September of an election year and Democrats can go in and do what they need to get people engaged and out to vote on just a two-month timeline, something that Democrats need to be working on a lot harder over the course of the entire political cycle to sort of overcome some of these problems that they've been having. You know, there's still more Democrats in North Carolina than Republicans, but the reason Republicans win almost every election, a big piece of it, is that they do a better job of getting their people out to vote. So now let's turn around and say, what would you, what advice would you give to the Republicans to maintain that position? The biggest advice I'd have for the Republicans is just to run more reasonable candidates and to run more qualified candidates. Uh, you know, last year was mostly a very positive year for Republicans in North Carolina, but the one exception to that uh, came in the 13th congressional district where. Uh, the Republican candidate, Bo Hines, lost to uh, the Democrat, Wiley Nickel. And that's really the kind of place where Republicans should have been winning last year. But they nominated a super conservative guy with really close ties to Trump in his 20s. So we talk about Republicans needing to run people who are more qualified and less extreme. Uh, Bo Hines is sort of the poster child of being somebody who was not very qualified and who was very extreme. And I think if Republicans had run any sort of half-decent candidate, they would have ended up winning that race. So I think that is the biggest message for Republicans, both in North Carolina and nationally, is to stop squandering their inherent advantages by running these candidates who, you know, your median voter just isn't going to find palatable enough to vote for. On the short term, what should we be watching for uh, in, the, say, the next six months? as far as issues that might emerge uh, that might have an effect on the 2024 election? Well, one thing that was really interesting about last year's election is I think you already sort of identified that inflation was the biggest thing. Uh, but Democrats were very focused on abortion and Republicans were very focused on crime. Uh, and especially in the congressional seats in New York that Republicans were able to flip that gave them a, a majority in the U.S. House, Crime was really a determinative issue. So what I'm going to be really interested to see is how those issues evolve over the course of this year. 
uh, as we get further and further away from the Supreme Court decision on abortion, is that going to continue to be such a top of mind issue for a lot of middle of the road voters that ended up helping Democrats overperform next year? Or is that kind of going to fade? And then the same thing with the crime issue. I think there's a perception that crime in the country is a lot worse than it actually is. Uh, and it's going to be interesting to see if voters continue to feel that way or not, because that's an issue that really hurt Democrats in each of the last two election cycles. Voters just thought that Democrats were too permissive, uh, too, uh, too letting things get out of control. And I think that caused a lot of suburban voters to end up voting Republican. Tom, your timing has been impeccable. Uh, you give me just enough time to thank you very much for sharing these thoughts and opinions with us. And we look forward to having you back on again. And uh, we'll do just that. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he promises me faithfully that he will have another interesting guest again next week on the same group of stations. So uh, all across North Carolina, till next week, same time, same station. I hope that you and yours have a very, very good week. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.